Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Search warranted. A relative of one of the women believed to be buried in a Manitoba landfill tells us she is elated that the NDP has been elected because the Premier-designate is promising to conduct the very same search his predecessor rejected. The world is his ouster. A Republican strategist reflects on the stunning removal of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, and it's anyone's guess what his party will do next. If he knew then what we know now, I'll speak with a retired police officer who is calling for mercy for a death row inmate he helped convict, based on what he says is flawed evidence and bias of the people who first reported the case. Justice delayed. 27 years after Tupac Shakur was murdered, police have finally laid charges. The host of a podcast about the case explains why the rapper's legacy has only grown and what this overdue development means. Clothed-minded, the president of the Halifax Hawks Minor Hockey Association walks us through the new minimum attire rule, a Hockey Canada change room policy meant to improve inclusion in the sport. And pointed remarks. For the first time, scientists have recorded the sounds of spiky little echidnas talking to each other, but it's unclear whether the weird spiny anteaters are flirting or just needling each other. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that figures they know a thing or two about trading barbs. In Manitoba last night, the government changed. And for the families of the women whose bodies are believed to be buried in a landfill outside Winnipeg, that change was monumental. The incumbent Conservatives had not only refused to search the landfill for the murdered Indigenous women, they campaigned on that refusal. But the NDP pledged to search the Prairie Green landfill for the bodies of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron, who police allege were victims of a serial killer. Here's NDP leader and Premier-designate Wab Canoe telling The Current what comes next. Well, I think we have to spend uh, the next couple weeks with a transition and getting sworn in. But once we do so, this is something that we are going to, to work on, uh, do, doing very quickly. And I would like to collaborate with the federal government who have indicated uh, an openness to this. But there's two considerations that make this an urgent situation. First and foremost are the families. The families who since last November or December have just been asking for a very simple thing, which is dignity uh, for their loved ones and to just have a message sent from our society that they that we are going to try. We are going to try and bring their loved ones home. And then the other is that, um, you know, this is, a, this is a question of the administration of justice. And so we need to uh, expedite it uh, along uh, those uh, concerns as well. Manitoba's next premier and the country's first First Nations premier, Wab Canoe. Melissa Robinson is the cousin of Morgan Harris. We reached her in Winnipeg. What does that promise to try mean to you right now, Melissa? It means everything. You know, we met with Wab back on August 3rd and, you know, we went over all the details and what does a search exactly look like to us and what we were looking for in regards to, you know, retrieving Morgan and uh, we, we're just over the moon. We're super excited. Um, I'm still, you know, on cloud nine from, from yesterday talking with the minister and then going yeah. to the NDP victory party and it's been a really, really good couple of days. This was the election result you were hoping for, clearly. So what was that victory party like? What did you, you and your family do? It's we, you know, we cried. <sighs> to just see everyone that has stood there with us since the very beginning. You know, Grand Chief, um, when she walked up to the Hotel Fort Gary, 
she burst into tears. I burst into tears. We we hugged each other, you know, to see my niece Cambria shed tears, you know, because we we've all have stood so strong and so firm on everything that, you know, to to finally hear that good news, it was just such a sense of relief. And I felt like a a huge weight lifted off of our shoulders. I heard there were some celebrations in, you know, right at Portage in Maine as well. Yes, yeah, we kind of took it to the streets afterwards. (laughs) Last time we spoke, it it was Labor Day. And the the election campaign w- was just getting started. And one of the things you told me at that time was that you, you really wanted voters to, to think of your cousin and, and what the previous government had said about, you know, not searching that landfill quite adamantly had said that. You wanted them to remember that as they went to the polls. So, you know, do you have a sense that that, that message got through to people who aren't personally affected by what has happened to your family, that this was a broader issue for voters at the polls? Oh, you a hundred percent. Like you, know, my husband said this morning, people went to the polls and and voted with their hearts. You know, they they want to see the right thing done, and regardless of your skin color, it shouldn't be based on that. Everyone deserves that human dignity, and everyone reserves uh, deserves a proper burial. And the conservatives, you know, for for our listeners elsewhere, you know, outside of Manitoba, the the conservatives took out ads and billboards doubling down on that refusal to search the landfill. Do you think that that, that the tone of that message just didn't it, resonate? It, you know, no, it it was ugly. It was absolutely ugly to attack our grieving families in regards to her standing firm. Well, you know what? Our province stood firm yesterday and showed the PCs where to go with that. We have a new government in place. We're excited because, you know, there's there's promises there to get this landfill searched, to get the work done, and to bring our loved ones home. There was another development this morning, as you know, a significant one. The Federal Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations promised to pay for further assessments of the feasibility of this search. He expects that to take about 90 days. Is that something you welcome? Absolutely. We see we knew about it yesterday. So that's what made yesterday <laughs> so, so much more exciting, right? For us, these are the beginning steps to start going forward. And that's exactly what we want to see, right? So it's just a matter of time now. How long do you think the search will take once the feasibility studies and all of that are done? Uh, you know what? So I, I'm comfortable to say that, you know what, within a year, that they they will have what they need and we'll, we'll finally get closure. This is a bit of a difficult question to ask you, and, and I, I don't want to bring your celebratory mood down in, in any way, but do you allow yourself to think of what happens when that search is done if, if you don't get the answers that you're looking for? You know, I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't think of it like that. Yeah. I know that we will. You know, I know one of the hard questions that was asked of us back in July was, in regards to how much of Morgan can they find, right? That was that was a tough question uh, for them to ask us. And, you know, our, our family agreed that, you know, if you can search for one year from the time the first dig and retrieve what you can of her, we'll, we'll be content with that. We, we just want something, right? We want something to be able to lay her spirit to rest. This is Sisters in Spirit Day, a day to honor the lives of missing and murdered Indigenous yeah. women. And we heard Premier-designate Canoe speaking, you know, in that clip that this is not just about the emotions of family members. This is a matter of justice. So at the end of this, what does justice look and feel like to you? Him being prosecuted uh, to the fullest degree. I hope that man never you know, sets foot outside of the jail again. And our justice will be that we will have that closure. You know, we can, you know, honor Morgan the way she deserves to be and give somewhere for her children and her future grandchildren to go see her and and to, you know, honor their mom and grandma. That's really what this is all about, you know. It, it's, about, it's about our family and, and it's about her. Melissa, I appreciate your time and your openness. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. That was Melissa Robinson, the cousin of Morgan Harris. She's in Winnipeg.
Robert Robertson's name only appears once in the U.S. Supreme Court decision on a long list of people whose cases the court has opted not to review. No further explanation is given. And for the death row inmate, it is a terrible blow that leaves him pretty much out of options. Mr. Robertson was sentenced to be executed in 2003 for shaking his two-year-old daughter Nikki to death. But today there's a lot of skepticism about shaken baby syndrome and the use of that term in prosecutions. And Brian Wharton says that's just one of the things that has changed since Mr. Robertson's conviction. Mr. Wharton is a retired police officer turned United Methodist Church pastor. In 2003, he helped put Robert Robertson behind bars. We reached Reverend Wharton in Onalaska, Texas. Brian, how did you take the news from the Supreme Court? Um, it, it grieved me deeply. Um, there was uh, some hope here that um, once, in me anyway, that once this case got outside the confines of the state of Texas, that um, there would be a, a level of clarity that would be uh, um, available to some folks to kind of see what's going on here, um, and things would uh, begin to turn in the direction of uh, exonerating uh, Mr. Robertson, but uh, that is not the case, and so, um, yeah, anguish and um, and grief. But I, again, I still remain hopeful that there's yeah. there's some opportunities here to do the right thing. If we go back to 2003, though, you testified for the prosecution against Robert right. Robertson. What did you believe at the time? Well, at the time, we were working with that which the, the physicians and medical examiners had expressed to us, and that was that mm-hmm. here is a child that has died from uh, what we all referred to at the time as shaken baby syndrome. Um, at the time that the child was uh, brought to the hospital injured, there was a single adult in custody of that child, and, and that was him. Did you did you have questions though, even even with all of that information? Uh, everything that I was seeing, um, well, there was nothing that I was seeing or hearing that would have made me think otherwise. Yeah. When did that change? Well, my, my concerns um, about the case changed. Um, as we progressed through it, um, there were some issues that came up, one to do with the, uh, that our suspect was not acting right, that he was not is- responding emotionally, as you would expect someone whose child was in such desperate straits to be responding. Certainly, it was not, I would imagine, a jury looking at him and seeing him entirely unemotional during the process had to have some impact. Um, And so he wasn't crying or behaving as people sometimes assume that grieving people should behave, though we know people behave in grief in different ways. But also, he he later received an autism diagnosis. So when did you start to learn different facts about the case and realize that something was wrong here? Knowing for sure sure that there was something wrong um, would not come until years later. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no real awareness of the change in science mm-hmm. until his defense attorney, his new defense attorney, um, came and found me um, and shared what she had learned um, in defending him. When you get that knock on you, on the door and you speak with that new defense attorney, what is is that moment like? Well, as I told her then, I, I, I'd, I'd been expecting that knock on my door for years. Um, just again, I just felt like somewhere in the appellate process, the, the required appeal process for death penalty cases, uh, somebody was going to say, hey, there's some problems here that we need to address. And um, so, yeah, I, I expected that and um, was um, somewhat relieved that somebody um, was finally kind of um, digging into it a little bit more. You talked about some of the emotions you felt. Once you got that clarity, you said you felt relief, but was guilt something you felt? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's, um, that's unavoidable, I think, um, for me, anyway. Um, and, and regardless of how this ends, that, that will follow me um, for the rest of my life. 
human systems are flawed systems. We're incapable of producing the kind of fairness that this final judgment requires. And so uh, I was never comfortable with it. This is one of those places where the system has become so large and so distant from the people that actually live in it that um, we've comforted ourselves that if we just go back and check and make sure that we have crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, that we done all those things right, then we can do this thing that we want to do. Um, we never really slow down to ask ourselves, should we do this thing that we think we should do? Um, you know, there are these are real people um, with real lives, hopes, dreams, love, all those wonderful things, um, despite what the state has said about them. Um, and, you know, simply waving the flag over our decision does not mitigate the fact that we've sanctioned homicide on behalf of the state. The only recourse he has at this stage legally uh, is is Texas Governor Greg Abbott potentially granting him clemency. You said you've had hope in the past. Do you think, do you have hope that the governor, this governor, would do that? I... I refuse to give up on the notion that it's possible. Um, I just, I've not seen anything from this current state governance that would tend to indicate they're in the least inclined to mercy. Um, It's just not in them um, that I can see. So it's, it's a hope, but it's kind of at the fingertips. What is your advice, Brian, to investigators, to police working now? Um, I, I think just not to not allow yourself to be overcome by the system that you're a part of, not to lose your humanity, and... Um, particularly for us in a country where we say they're innocent until proven guilty, not to lose the humanity of those whom you suspect and those whom you arrest. They are still people. Guilty or not, they're still people, and they're deserving of, um, of grace. Brian, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Brian Wharton is a retired police officer whose testimony helped to convict death row inmate Robert Robertson in 2003. He's now a United Methodist Church pastor who wants to see Mr. Robertson's sentence overturned. We reached him in Onalaska, Texas. For more than 27 years, fans of Tupac Shakur have waited for justice. Now they may finally get it. Today in Las Vegas, a man charged in the rapper's murder made a brief court appearance. Dwayne Keefe D. Davis was arrested last week after being indicted by a grand jury. Some people are celebrating the long-awaited breakthrough, but many are wondering why it was so long-awaited, why it took so long for police to lay charges. Lena Nozizwe is a former entertainment reporter who covered the murder in the 1990s. She now hosts a podcast about the case. We reached her in Los Angeles. Lena, you well know decades we're talking about here, speculation, a mythical quality really to this case, whether there's a real person at the heart of it. So how hopeful are you that there will be some closure here? I would say very hopeful. And the names that you're hearing in the news, including the person who was indicted and was supposed to have an arraignment. It's been postponed. There's been a continuance. But he's a name that I was familiar with when I first started doing the story 27 years ago. And the fact that something moved, that there was a search warrant, made me hopeful. And then the arrest, yes, something's going to happen. 
Lena Tupac Shakur's stepbrother is among the family members speaking to media, telling the Associated Press, quote, law enforcement hasn't cared for a long time. Why did it take police so long to lay these charges? A very good question. And the focus of my podcast is one of the original investigators. And, of course, I have been hearing that the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department really wasn't interested in the case. And so much of what I've talked about really goes to the heart of that. And I think there's some important facts to remember. Number one is the night the shooting happened, Brent Becker was called out and it was a shooting. It was not a homicide and he's a homicide detective. And the reason they did that was because of Tupac's prominence. They had difficulties in getting anybody to talk, including Suge Knight, who was driving the car with Tupac that night. It took him a few days to come in, and when he came in, he came in with three attorneys. That was difficult even the night of the shooting to get witnesses to talk. Understandably, the witnesses at the scene were not treated especially well. They were treated like suspects, so that wasn't a great beginning. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of factors. Another factor is that most of the suspects, including Keithy D. and Orlando Anderson, who's always been touted as the trigger man, who I even met and mentioned in my first story, they're all out of Compton. And the crime happened in Las Vegas. So you have a jurisdictional issue as well. But you, as you've said, you've known about Keefe D or Dwayne Davis, the man at the center of this particular case who appeared in court today briefly. You've known about him for a long time. He's been talked about for a long time. So why did police act now? What changed? Well, a few things changed. Perhaps the biggest one is Keefe D himself. He started, to use the vernacular, running his mouth. He went on YouTube. He went on television. He wrote a memoir, an incriminating memoir. Why did he do this? I mean, that's a big question. That was my next question to you. Why? <laughs> Why would he do this? Well, a source told me that Keefe thought that the book was going to be the bomb, like straight out of Compton, that it was going to blow up. Did he think he thought that? You know, police have gone this long without charging anyone. He probably would be would be safe to say what he wanted. It seems that's the case. I don't know what would have motivated him to think that he could get away with it, quite frankly. But he did for a good five years. And long before that, even before he started talking. Correct. Correct. But in terms, yeah, yeah, I mean, he memorialized himself yeah. because previously he had made a confession as a part of a deal to get out of going to prison for drugs. Mm -hmm. But it took him years before he went on television, before he wrote his book. So there, there's a gap there. I remember when Tupac Shakur was shot. Uh, it was a story that consumed a lot of people for a long time and still does. What do you remember about when this happened? I was sitting in a diner. We were waiting for breakfast. I was reading the newspaper, and then I saw the shooting of Tupac. And my first response was, because I'd heard, you know, he'd been shot before in in New York City. And I thought, oh, that Tupac. <laughs> you know, I, he's going he's gonna to survive yeah. again this time. And I was wrong. You had to fight to cover the story, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, my bosses weren't sure that he was a upstanding citizen because maybe his thug life tattoo. And there was a time that the vice president way back when, Dan Quayle, basically said he was a menace to society. And my view was Tupac had a great deal of cultural significance. I said that then. I had no idea just how much. When you talk about his cultural significance then and now, if this case, if there is a resolution and a conviction, what will that mean for Tupac's legacy now? I think the important part of the legacy is his family. And I know Mo Prem, his brother, has said, get out the popcorn, let's watch. 
you know, there's so many directions to go because different people think different things. For some people, a conviction won't really mean anything. For some people, they still believe Tupac's alive, and I communicate with them, so I'm serious. So for some people, nothing will resolve this, but I think at least it's put more attention on it And whether there's a deal, whether there's a trial, what I look forward to is seeing some of the information that has been gathered all these years. Lena, I'm so glad we could speak, and we might speak again as as this case continues. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Lena Nozizwe is the host of the podcast, Lena Nozizwe Reporting, Tupac's Murder Was His Case. We reached her in Los Angeles. Republican House representatives may have woken up with a hangover this morning, asking themselves, what happened yesterday and what now? On Tuesday, in a shocking turn of events, the House voted to remove Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Eight right-wing Republicans voted with the Democrats to seal his fate. The final straw for the rebels was Mr. McCarthy's decision to compromise with the Democrats to continue the flow of funding in the face of a government shutdown. Ron Bonjean is a former spokesman for the Speaker of the House and is now a Republican strategist. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Ron, what do you think the person sitting at home, the average American, if you will, was thinking watching what happened? I don't think many Americans realize exactly what just happened yet. But every day that goes by, more and more are going to be educated to know that for the first time in American history, a Speaker of the House was removed. Um, it, it's highly unusual. And as a former Republican communications staffer that's worked on Capitol Hill for a long time, I can tell you this one was definitely a first. Just before I came in to speak with you, Reuters put out a poll saying two thirds of Americans surveyed say Washington politicians are incapable of putting partisan squabbles aside. Do you see danger in that? Uh, you know, absolutely. I think it's given the rise to Donald Trump frankly, because people are sick and tired of the inaction in Washington, the vitriol, the the poisonous atmosphere that has caused gridlock now for a number of years where people are, you know, American voters are taxpayers and to see their government not working is really frustrating. Given how difficult it was for McCarthy to be selected, if we go back a few months, how contentious that was, uh, and the climate right now, do you think it was bound to come to this, to this historic moment? Or was there a way, was there a compromise that would have prevented it? No, I think this was coming to a head and the McCarthy team knew it. They just didn't know when. Uh, and I think while we were shocked to see it happen, I think we were also surprised that Speaker McCarthy lasted this long, considering the list of demands that the hardline mm-hmm. conservatives had placed on him and the measures they could take if they weren't happy. Were those demands legitimate, in your view, for these eight members who voted against the speaker? Or is this about sowing chaos, in your view? I think I think these people, these uh, hardliners, lived in their own Facebook metaverse, so to speak, <laughs> their own fantasy land, where they thought that um, we could eliminate cabinet departments, cut the def- cut spending in half, um, you know, secure the border with billions of dollars and get everything they wanted. When in reality, we have divided government and Republicans represent one half of one third of that government. You know, in order to make it function, there has to be some give and take. If you were in your former role as a spokesperson, what would you be telling the Republican caucus? Right now, I would be telling them that they need to elect a speaker within 72 hours. They need to have a a candidate that they put forward to have elected uh, by the Congress over the weekend because Americans deserve to see their government function, and this has been a major stumble, and to show and to regain the momentum back that that they've had in the past. But unfortunately, it's going to take a week now for them to get their act together and to have this vote next Wednesday. 
just because of the, there was no really plan B. We're hearing names like Scalise and Jordan at this stage. Others will, will come forward, certainly. But this this group of, of rebels, if we can call them that, how, how does the party rein them in? They need to figure it out pretty quickly. It's so difficult with such a limited majority and the unwillingness of these hardliners to work with the leadership. Electing a speaker that they can trust is going to be paramount to getting some things done. And I think they both, they like both Scalise and uh, Jim Jordan as well. So that's that's a good first step. Uh, Second step though, I don't think any future speaker would want to have a guillotine over their head regarding Mm -hmm. the motion to vacate. And so they're going to have to figure out how they can get away from that um, because it's just it's not it's not fair to 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 do that to to somebody uh, and their staff uh, at a moment's notice because one member is unhappy that they can just fire the coach of the team because one player is upset about the plays that are being called. Do you think the spotlight is what they want? Absolutely, I think it's ambition that's driving this. Uh, Matt Gates is, you know, loves being the in charge right now of House Republicans. That's what it looks like, at least, uh, because he's calling the shots and he may be running for governor in 2026. But surely they're, the, they could they not be worried that their constituents don't don't like what they're doing? He's I think his constituents, you know, every member of Congress has a different constituency mm-hmm. and his constituents seem to support him. Um, or else I don't think he'd be doing it. If he was, he'd be probably out of office. But I think his constituents support his his line of attack, which is we need to be cutting the budget. When in reality, it's more about I'd like to be governor of the state of Florida. You're a Republican strategist, obviously, as we've said. But if you put yourself in the shoes of the Democrats here, do you think they're they're relishing this internal chaos? They're loving it. They're loving every minute of it. Every day that goes by, we don't have a speaker, is a day that Republicans can't move their agenda forward. Every day that we're in chaos is another is a great day for them. And they're not getting in our way. They're, they're letting us dig our own hole right now, and they're not trying to take away the shovel. It just it feels like they're lurching from crisis to crisis. You know, the, there's another countdown, just 40 days before another funding bill has to has to pass, right, to continue the funding of, of the government. So if the House can't get it together, can't get a deal done by then, what's the, the worst case scenario you're seeing? Well, the worst case scenario is that we'd have a government shutdown again while we have a new speaker and his team getting up and running. The hope would be that there would be a support by the hardliners to have another short-term funding approval to let the speaker get his sea legs. Uh, that would make, I think, a lot of sense to the conference. I don't know if it makes sense to the conservative hardliners because no one really knows what makes them tick. Ron, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. appreciate it. Ron Bonjean is a former spokesperson for the Speaker of the House and is now a Republican strategist. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. As this year's hockey season started, Craig Robinson, the president of the Halifax Hawks Minor Hockey Association, sent a letter to players and their families explaining the new dressing room policy. It's called the Minimum Attire Rule. It's a Hockey Canada policy meant to promote inclusion and respect the privacy of all participants on a team. We reached Craig Robinson in Halifax. 
Craig, for those of us who haven't been in, in a locker room of, the, of this sort, what normally happens? What are players normally wearing or not wearing? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think we need to think about that as a minor hockey association. We cover um, players from four years old up to 23 years old. So there can be quite a range in terms of readiness to just come and jump on the ice and help by their parents versus those who are coming from school or somewhere else who need to get ready to go forward. So, you know, let's, let's say there's a range. I think the policy that's come in is particularly focused on, I would say, from the teenagers mm-hmm. onwards. Um, and then we can get a mix. We get some players who will come in and they'll have what we describe as their base layer, the kind of shorts and T-shirt on underneath ready to go under their gear, um, and others who will just arrive and, and will put that on when they arrive. So a bit of a mix. Right. So there might be various states of undress in the locker room is, is what I'm there trying to be. get to. Yes. The, so, yeah, they can be. So what will this new rule change? Uh, well, so basically, the, the new rule um, means that everybody has to comply with something called minimum attire. You know, in, in some ways, we can think about that as saying, what would you be comfortable wearing on the beach or at the swimming pool or wherever it might be? And, you know, Hockey Canada have defined that as a T-shirt and, and shorts or a T-shirt and compression shorts or like, a, a you know, um, something that might a jock that might have a cup mm-hmm. contained or mm-hmm. a sports bra mm-hmm. and, and shorts that would cover those things as well. So basically, you need to kind of arrive with that base layer uh, minimum attire on um, and make sure that you have that's the minimum level that you're at at all times. And in the policy, Hockey Canada writes, quote, all participants have the right to utilize the dressing room or appropriate and equivalent dressing environment based on their gender identity, religious beliefs, body image concerns, or other reasons related to their individual needs. So what does it mean for you in your role to hear a shift in wording and, and philosophy? Um, well, it's something that we've been asking for for, for quite a for quite a while, and certainly started to talk about it certainly over twelve months ago. Because the policies that have been in place are probably around about thirty years old. Um, and the most obvious and most visual um, reason we were asking for that was around that as a you know predominantly male but co-ed hockey association that we have female players who can kind of feel excluded from the team environment. Um, you know, with the best intentions in the world, they could miss team talks beforehand and. They're kind of not able to join in and, and have that whole team experience. So we very much welcome this on the basis that we want everybody to be included mm-hmm. and everyone to be able to kind of come in and be in at all times. And the great thing about this not being focused on, on gender or sexuality is that now, you know, it doesn't just mean that one team or, and everybody shoots as kind of it's all boys or it's all girls, so we're okay. Uh, it just means that those non-visuals, people who don't want to disclose certain things or feel uncomfortable disclosing certain things or be uncomfortable in environments don't need to wear every rule because everybody has to be the same. And these are not just recommendations? No, it's a, it's a policy and it's a mandate. So it's something that has to happen. Um, and it's something that, you know, our membership is going to have to get used to um, and it's going to have to comply with. But to me, um, it's a very short price or very limited price to pay to make sure that everybody feels included. So you're on board, but what about others? What about parents? What are you hearing? Well, you know, I mean, Hockey in Canada has um, been around for a long time, and there's a lot of strong views and a lot of perceptions about where it might be. Um, you know, there's a feeling of this being kind of asinine, it's, it's woke, it's not needed because everybody was okay beforehand. Um, I saw a quote on, on, on something online today, you know, the, the 999 have to change because the one didn't feel comfortable. Um, so there's a number of those kind of comments that, that we're starting to hear. Um, and we're just talking through people and saying, look, it's not a big ask. If you can arrive, most people arrive dressed like that way anyway. If you can't arrive like that, then you can just kind of go somewhere private, whether that be the washroom, put your base layer on uh, and, and come back in the afternoon afterwards. Um, you know, the other things we're starting to hear of, well, what about after the game? You know, my player will be all sweaty and smelly. Um, you know, and you're expecting them to have to get in the car ride home um, in that sweaty mm-hmm. gear. That's not great. Um, and again, it's it's one of those things. It's a relatively simple. It, it takes just a short moment to go to the washroom, change out of that, and then make sure that, you know, the envi- that dressing room environment saves that remains a place where everybody can feel comfortable. Do you think it will turn into more than pushback? Do you think people will will just refuse to do this? Are you expecting conflict on that front? Um, I, I don't expect conflict. I think that would be too strong a word. Mm-hmm. I think there'll be people who think that it won't apply to them. Um, I think there'll be people who think that they don't have to worry about it, and it's going to take us a bit of time 
um, to continue to get the message in and re- reinforce that. Um, but this is a trend that's been happening, and you know, I was very grateful for our membership over the last year when there was bigger focus put back on the rule of two and that, and that there should always be two supervising any dressing room mm-hmm. at any point in time. So we, we already have two adults in supervising the dressing room anyway. So it's just another ask of, of those um, of those um, adults and those volunteers to make sure that uh, everyone's complying with this. And um, I'm sure there'll be um, some who won't ever want to do it and, and some who will make a point. Um, but we'll come in to get there, and, and to me, this is this is you know this is a very small ask yeah. uh, to make sure that everybody feels included. You know, I'm sure a few years ago when neck guards were introduced and cages were introduced and all of those things are mandatory, there's always been a little bit of bit of pushback against some of those things. But in the years to time, we we won't even think about it. This will just mm-hmm. be this will just be how how it is and how we move forward. Um, so you know, the world is changing and it's becoming a, a better and more inclusive place. And, and and take a little while, but I'm sure we're going to get there with this. Craig, thank you. No problem at all. Good to talk. That was Craig Robinson, the president of the Halifax Hawks Minor Hockey Association. In our profession, layperson means non-expert. In the Catholic Church, layperson means something more specific. It means an ordinary member of the church, not a priest, not a member of any religious order, and until now, not able to vote at an all-important meeting where the church charts its course for the future. But as the Synod of Bishops began in Rome today, that changed. For the first time in its history, women and laypeople are among the Synod's voting delegates. And for Mary Ellen Chown, that is long overdue. Ms. Chown is a member of the Catholic Network for Women's Equality. We reached her in Rome. Mary Ellen, how did you mark the start of this historic synod? Uh, This day began with a very moving experience in the morning, early morning. We met by the river within sight of uh, St. Peter's Square and the Vatican, and it was women from many continents together with a banner um, that said, Ordain Women. And we sang songs and prayed uh, to be in conjunction with the Synod Mass that was also occurring around the same time with the delegates in St. Peter's Square. And you're not a voting delegate, but you still really wanted to be there. Yeah, several members of our our movement wanted to be there and from around the world just to be that visible presence of what Catholics in this last two years of consultation have been yearning for and calling for um, since we've been asked um, and and people have said um, we need greater participation of all in the church. And frankly, that's become the theme of the Synod, is to become a more welcoming, inclusive church. Those, those consultations were called listening sessions, as you mentioned. They took place over the last two years. You did take part in that process. So what were the overwhelming themes and concerns you heard? Uh, Certainly, I heard um, the concern about a church that moves more towards compassion, being open, being inclusive, being accountable, and less about a church that is sort of rooted in fear and rules and judgment. And what about addressing some of the biggest issues? You know, we certainly cover uh, a lot of them, residential schools, the legacy of those schools. And on this program, actually, last month, we had an activist on, Gemma Hickey, who was there, had done a walk carrying a cross in, into the square, and is fighting for, for action to help survivors of sexual abuse committed by clergy in the Catholic Church. So how much do those kinds of issues factor into to where we're at today at the Synod? Well, I think that's what has been the focus of our movement, and it's about calling the church to accountability with women, with the clergy sexual abuse scandal, which is a global scandal and cover up by bishops, with its appalling record on living up to its obligations regarding the legacy of Indian residential schools in Canada especially. And so uh, it's really those very challenging questions need to be faced in this synod to say, how do we build a new church that does not permit this level of hurt when we are meant to be about love? Given how long you have been working on this and how difficult these issues have proven to be, how optimistic are you that this synod 
of bishops will actually make the kind of change that you've been pushing for? Well, I agree. It has been a long time and it can be hard when you feel like you are respectfully asking for change and the door seems like it's closed. I feel like there's a window of opening this time. I think the style of Pope Francis is one of saying, let's be open, let's have dialogue. And so if that dialogue is good, it should lead to structural change in the church that's meaningful for people. You consider yourself a Catholic, I know, but you've you've also gone to another church. Can you tell our listeners about that and making that decision? Yeah, I've been a Catholic all my life, and um, I've had wonderful experiences, thankfully, in the Catholic Church. It's taught me a lot. I did reach a point where I felt sitting in the pews with, in, in one case, a priest who had fired a woman who was beloved in this parish as a pastoral assistant for 20 years, and I just could not abide that. I felt like I was condoning a church that was, was not a just place. I have found a wonderful progressive Anglican community that has taught me just how wonderful church can be. And so my hope will always be that the Catholic Church can become the best it can be. There are those, as you well know, who see this approach as as un-Catholic even, and that includes conservative commentator Reverend Gerald Murray, who has said, quote, we're not Protestants. What do you say to him and others who agree with him? Um, I think some of those views end up being sort of rooted in a sense of fear. And I just don't think that's the way any institution can go forward in the future. We have really challenging things to deal with in the world. I think we need to be open, ready to listen, ready to change and move towards justice, not going back to the past, some glorified image of the past that, in a sense, really never existed. You mentioned Pope Francis and and his approach But do you worry there could be a backlash if and when a successor is selected? I think Pope Francis is trying to set structural things in place. He called himself the Bishop of Rome when he was first elected, and he's wanting to set things in place so that there is diversity, there is conversation. Even some of the people that have been selected, it's very clear that there's a range of opinions. Um, I think he's really trying to remove the notion that this will be a battle between liberals and progressives. He began with three days of prayer, and that's kind of the focus is to say, can we find common ground? Can we discuss our differences respectfully? Can we come to a new place of focusing on being a church of love? Is there a single change or a takeaway when you leave Rome after this trip that will that will feel like a success to you? Um, well, I would like to see that what's discussed in this synod is made known to people so that we have a sense of where the direction of the conversation went. You want the doors open of these closed-door meetings, transparency. Yes, I think that, you know, we've all contributed to this process. We have contributed to the themes. We are excited to learn um, what transpires and to see how will the steps change to make something new. Can you imagine yourself going back to the Catholic Church? Uh, that remains to be seen. We we have a long way to go. Um, there is a lot, you know, large institutions don't change easily. Um, but I would hope for the world that the church can become a model of equality. Um, we need it badly. Mary Ellen, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. Mary Ellen Chown is a member of the Catholic Network for Women's Equality. She's in Rome for this month's Synod of Bishops. It's unusual to have one super achiever in a family. Two might seem like too many, but not in this case. Earlier this week, Catalina Carrico won the Nobel Prize for Medicine for her pioneering work on the technology behind mRNA vaccines. Then we learned that her daughter, Susan Francia, is an Olympic gold medalist in rowing. We learned that via a headline Professor Carrico posted on X, which read, Rowing Mom Wins Nobel. Last night, Susan told us how her mother inspired her. You can find that interview on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH, along with reaction from her mother. Here's what she told us about that tongue-in-cheek headline. I love that title. You know, we have another role. We are mom. We are rooting for our children. And beside that, of course, we can win a Nobel Prize. (laughs) 
Head to our website, as I said, cbc.ca slash AIH, to find that story about Nobel Prize winner Kathleen Carrico and her Olympian daughter, Susan Francia, along with some family photos. This morning, the largest healthcare worker strike in U.S. history began when 75,000 unionized workers of the not-for-profit healthcare company Kaiser Permanente walked off the job in five states. Their contracts expired early Monday morning, and despite months of negotiations, no new deal has been brokered that satisfies the union's demands for higher pay and protections against outsourcing work to non-unionized workers. Christina Anderson is a striking healthcare worker. We reached her on the picket line in the Los Angeles suburb of Baldwin Park, California. Christina, you've been out on the picket line all day. What's it like out there? Um, you know what? It's empowering. There's a lot of energy and everybody's fired up to, you know, work on the safe staffing issue and, and get Kaiser to listen to us and hear us. And that's what we're doing. What is happening inside Kaiser Permanente Hospitals, in your view, that has that's pushed you and, and 75,000 of your colleagues to walk out? Well, you know, frontline workers are stressed out and burned out from working short-staffed, and Kaiser executives refuse to listen to the frontline healthcare workers, and they continue to bargain bad faith to, you know, reach a solution so, you know, that we need to solve the Kaiser short-staffing crisis. What's it, what is it like for you uh, as a phlebotomist, you know, in, in one of these hospitals? Just take me through your day. What is making it difficult, in your view, to do your job? Well, I, I work in one of the clinics, and I draw blood from patients, and I'm often left alone to do the job of not two, but three phlebotomists. So, I mean, not only does that delay patient care, but it puts my patients and my safety at risk. And it's, it's really hard to provide the quality care that our patients deserve when frontline healthcare workers are stressed and burned out from working short-staffed. You mentioned that you feel that your, your employer is not bargaining in good faith so far. Those negotiations have been going on since April. What specifically gives you that sense that they're not bargaining in good faith, as you well, put it? Well, you know, there was one day when they just didn't show up at the bargaining table. They didn't show up until lunch was served, and they came in and stood in line, got their lunch, and left. And our CEO, Greg Adams, has not even bothered to attend bargaining. And we've had, we came in with proposals, you know, for solutions, and Kaiser didn't even arrive with a proposal. And they wouldn't even respond to our proposals. So they have not been bargaining in good faith until we gave, you know, Frontline SEIU gave their 10-day strike notice. And then that was the last, around the last day of bargaining sessions. And then coincidentally, they decided that they wanted to start bargaining. So bargaining has been extended at Kaiser's request. Your employer has issued a statement, it's been published in, in media reports, saying they, quote, lead total compensation in every market where we operate, and our proposals in bargaining would ensure we keep that position, end quote. What do you say to that? Well, I would say to that that our CEO makes $8,000 an hour, and at the bargaining table, his people told our frontline workers who are bargaining that frontline workers are overpaid. How much are you making? Are you willing to share? How much are you making? What would um, you like to be making? But you know what? I, at, at this point, mm-hmm. the bottom line is that we're striking because Kaiser executives refuse to listen to frontline healthcare workers, and they continue to bargain in bad faith over the solutions that we need to solve the Kaiser short staffing crisis. And Kaiser executives, they could end this today if they would just bargain in good faith. And they also want to outsource medical staff at clinics and bring in non-union employees. Mm -hmm. Uh, They already proposed to us that they will not be renewing a side letter that's included in our national bargaining agreement that protects healthcare workers in our clinics from being outsourced. 
and they have stated that they do not want to renew that letter. What would bargaining in good faith look like to you? What would you like them to see offer that you think you and your colleagues could get behind, just generally speaking? Um, to, to bargain and come to a solution about staffing us safely, giving us enough staff to give the care to the patients that they deserve. And that, that's for the patient safety and for worker safety. What's your message to to patients, Christina, who might be worried right now about getting access to the health care they need, the procedures they've been waiting for, and now having to keep waiting because of this, this labor action? You know, patients are already hurting. They've been hurting because of the short staffing crisis. And frontline health care workers want to work with Kaiser executives to find a solution to end that crisis. And patients Every day, my patients, when I sit down, you know, vent to me that they have to wait two months just to see their doctor. And especially when they come in and they see me short-staffed and they have to wait over an hour to get their blood drawn. And again, that delays their care. Um, it, it poses a safety risk to them and me because I'm short-staffed and I'm at higher risk of making a mistake. And that mistake will affect the patient. How long do you think this could go on? Right now, we are uh, our 10-day notice was to strike for three days. We've seen Hollywood strikes, you know, through the summer, the auto worker strikes more recently, and now your job action. How does that all line up for you? Do you feel that this is this is part of something bigger in terms of labor in your country? I feel that it's boiling. It all boils down to corporate greed. You know, again, these. These executives are making thousands of dollars an hour. Their companies are raking in billions of dollars, and they refuse to pay their workers, their frontline workers, equitably. And, you know, all we want is a fair living wage. Christina, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. Take care. Christina Anderson is a striking healthcare worker. We reached her on the picket line in the Los Angeles suburb of Baldwin Park, California. It's been a stressful day, so it seemed like a good time to introduce a new segment on As It Happens called Relaxation Corner. Relaxation Corner. <sighs> it's so soothing. Now, step one, take a deep breath. Step two, picture an echidna. It's a, a weird little anteater whose roly-poly body is covered with spines. Its tongue is half the length of its entire body. Its snout is narrow and long, and it has the button eyes of a teddy bear. It is adorable. And now, the final step in the relaxation process, listen to an echidna snore. very relaxing. Now, snoring, of course, is involuntary, but it's rare to hear echidnas make voluntary sounds. They tend to be the spiny silent type. Now, for what they... Sorry, still going. For what they believe to be the first time, scientists have recorded echidnas vocalizing alone and to each other. Now, first, the solo vocalization. Scientists have no idea why this creature issued this strange combination of coos and grunts when no other echidnas were around, and you'll have to listen closely to hear them. Those same patient scientists were also able to record several echidnas waddling along together, making sounds to one another, and those sounds sound like this. 
the scientists believe that that collection of warbles, gurgles, and wheezes may constitute flirting, since they only heard those vocalizations during mating season. Another possibility is that one was choking on an ant and the others were laughing at it. Echidnas are mysterious. And it's not surprising they're quiet. Given the sheer length they're dealing with, they probably get tongue-tied. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.